Welcome to the Saddle Hunter Podcast, where tree stands are worse than a warm front during the rut. Now, here are your hosts, Scott and Greg. What's up, Saddle Nation? Greg here. I apologize it has taken us so long to get this second episode out, but we have some great content tonight, a wonderful interview, and a whole bunch of saddle hunting gossip. Scott, how's it going, man? It's been a while since we talked. Yeah, hey, Greg. How you doing, man? Man, I am... Uh... I'm doing good. A little better than you. I know you've been slammed at work and you got sick. And man, t- tell me about what's going on. Yeah, we just we've been busy at work. Lots of uh, a big project going on, so that's been taking up a lot of my time. I actually was lucky enough to get sick with diverticulitis, uh, and I started feeling it the first day of my vacation of Thanksgiving week. So um, I was in the doctor a few times and. I probably shouldn't have been, but I was out in the tree a couple times, but I never made it farther than two or 300 yards from my truck. So I, I really didn't get to hunt like I normally would. That's so. awful. I mean, of course, right when you have some time off, right when the deer are starting to run around, then you get sick. Yeah, that's life, right? I guess so. I yeah. guess so. So did, so you said you, you got to hunt a little bit. Um, any luck or what happened? Um, What did I see? I saw... I had a spike walk right under me, so I actually think I got some good video of him. I saw, uh, let's see, one day I saw two does, and another day I saw three does. So, I, I mean, at least I got to see some deer, but not not what I was looking for. Yeah, well, it happens, and I guess when when all things are stacked against you, when work's going crazy, you're sick, and, you know, it's just it doesn't make for a good ruckation. Yeah, exactly. Trying, you're trying to cram all your work in just so you can go on vacation. And um, well, let's say let's just say that sitting in a tree was it was nice to be in the tree because that's my happy place. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Well, you know, I had a I had a whole bunch of happy place, and when uh, my brother and I took our our DIY public land trip to Illinois. Yeah, I've been following along on the thread online, so um, I'm excited to hear about it. So why don't you tell us? Yeah, so it's kind of a crazy story, to be honest. I was I was talking to a guy at work about it, and and after I um, kind of talked through the whole thing, I was like, "Holy cow, this is this is kind of trippy." Because you know we had been planning this trip for about six months, and the whole time we were planning to go to Fort Campbell, uh, which is in Kentucky. And, uh, the, the way that they do their hunting, they publish the open, open areas, you know, Fort Campbell's a military installation and it's very tightly regulated on when, where, and how you can hunt. And about three days in advance, they publish the open areas for hunting. So we had hotels booked and, uh, reservations at a couple different places. I had a boat rented cause we planned to hunt, um, by water a little bit. I mean, we had just done all the legwork. We'd done all the digital scouting on uh, topo and aerial maps. And I mean, we were ready to go. And I log on to their website on Wednesday. You know, we're leaving Saturday. This is 96 hours before the trip's supposed to start. Right. And I log on to the website to see which areas we're going to get to hunt. And they have a big banner message on the website saying that the whole installation was closed due to military training. Oh, geez. 
Yeah, and so I'm like, oh lord, what do I do now? They um, didn't get the memo that it was the rut? Yeah, I was pissed, you know. I thought about calling the commanding general and letting him have an earful. <laughs> yeah, probably <laughs> probably wouldn't have gone over too well. Uh, he obviously um, is not a hunter. <laughs> yeah, obviously not. Uh, but what that does tell me is is they shut down the installation for hunting during the best two weeks almost of the season. So that tells me that a whole bunch of deer, a whole bunch of bucks that would have gotten killed are going to make it till next year. So I'm thinking next year, that's where I'm going. I got it. Sounds yeah. good. So I guess long story short, you know, we, um, we ended up, I ended up calling pretty much everybody I knew hunting wise around the country. And we had invites to Indiana and Ohio. And, um, I had a line on some property way up in, uh, North central Illinois, right on the Iowa border. And so we had options, but we ended up deciding to go to Southern Illinois, um, to Shawnee national forest in, in Southern Illinois there. And it turned out to be a fantastic trip. I mean, we, we only had like 48 hours to plan this trip. So, so anyone that says that they, they can't plan this thing, I call shenanigans because I literally planned an entire DIY public land trip in 48 hours. So before you go any further, why did you guys decide to go there? One, I had already, uh, or I had always wanted to hunt in Illinois. Um, Illinois, I guess maybe, maybe beside Iowa and Kansas, I, I can't really think of any other, you know, big buck Mecca States. I mean, Wisconsin's up there for sure. And, you know, Iowa, obviously, and Kansas, obviously, and, you know, Missouri and Indiana, Ohio, all those states are known for their, for their big bucks. But I don't know. I mean, the lure of the Pike County, Illinois, it's got to be the most famed county in deer hunting. Yeah, absolutely. You know, maybe besides Buffalo County, Wisconsin, maybe that's number one, but you know, Illinois just is, it's Illinois. How do you argue with Illinois? So that's kind of what, why we decided on that. Okay. And I think the lure of, um, having a lot of public land surrounded by private ag fields, um, was pretty enticing. Okay. So, that, that sounds logical to me. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we did. We, we spent the next 48 hours kind of booking hotels and figuring out which pieces we wanted to target. And, you know, by the morning, by that Saturday morning, we had a pretty good idea of where we were going to go. And I, I did, you know, a hundred percent of the scouting. My brother is, uh, he's not, he's not a public land DIY guy. He's just never, he's just never had to do it. Um, he's always hunted private land in Florida where they hunt with feeders and, and, you know, stuff like that. They kind of hunt the same areas every year. He's a great hunter. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he, he moves around and, and he's killed some great deer there, but that's not really kind of their MO, you know, that's, pretty much what I do exclusively. So I, yeah. I have a little bit more experience. So I kind of picked the places we were going to go and we went in and we, we got there Saturday afternoon and zeroed in on those places and we started scouting. And actually I called John Eberhart right before I left and he advised me to spend the first couple of days scouting. So that's yeah. what we did. We scouted Saturday afternoon, all day Sunday, and then Monday morning. So it ended up being two full days of scouting. And I think it helped a lot. Um, Absolutely. If um, I know you've read John's books, I mean, that's um, definitely his, his, uh, what he preaches is scout, scout, scout it. So it pays off. Yeah. And I think it did. 
Um, well, I know it, it did from what happened. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're right. And if nothing else, um, really more than anything else, I think it kind of uh, helped us cross off some areas that weren't going to be productive. Mm-hmm. And what that did is it, it kind of gave us a template like, okay, we know that we walked the, you know, these X number of properties and, and looked at sign around, you know, ag fields and whatnot and pinch points and they didn't look that great. So that really helped us narrow down the areas that we were going to focus on more than anything. You know, just a pop uh, thought popped into my mind from what you said. It's kind of um, what I do in situations like that. I haven't done any crazy trips like that, but I've gone up to New York a couple times. And in situations like that, I try to find one thing that is working and then I try to reproduce it. Yeah. So whether it be like a certain side of a ridge or, um, you know, certain uh, feature of a swamp, if I find something where there's a lot of deer sign, I'll look on the maps and find something similar because you're limited time. You just kind of got to find something that works in that area and then go with it. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, that's pretty much what we did. Um, spot on. We we decided to focus on really narrow pinch points. Wasn't a whole lot of ridges where we were. It was fairly flat, not a whole lot of elevation changes, and not a whole lot of agriculture. Um, the places that we focused on were places that were uh, either – kind of overlooked maybe maybe not a terribly far walk but maybe really thick or surrounded by swamp or something like that that mm-hmm. would you know eliminate a lot of hunter i mean it's not rocket science it wasn't like we figured out some in-depth uh um way to hunt these deer that they've never seen before we basically just got away from people and got into places that we didn't think were was getting a lot of hunting pressure that was pretty much our recipe and that's a good strategy for when you're going somewhere you haven't been and don't have that much time. Yeah, and we had the the benefit of of hunting out of tree saddles, which you know made it much easier to be mobile. I never hunted the same spot more than a morning and an evening, uh, so I never spent more than I'm going to say eight hours, eight to ten hours in the same tree, just because the way it, we decided to hunt. So what we would do is in the afternoon at lunchtime we would scout a new area hang a hang a spot uh hunt it and then leave the setup in the tree overnight come back and hunt the spot in the morning and then the next day you know the next day at lunch you know kind of rinse and repeat Mm -hmm. Um, i i remember reading that you were saying that and the only thing i thought that i might have done differently and depending on the situation is if i did in that situation if i found a spot that was hot I would have I would have hunted until it wasn't hot anymore. Yeah. You probably but. you're probably right. That that definitely could have worked and I ended up kind of doing that um with a couple of days spaced out in between. I ended up shooting a deer um and then I, I left that area cuz I tr- you know tromped around it all over it and I felt like I kind of ruined it. And I ended up going back there later in the week. Cause it was just kind of a hot area. So yeah, I guess, I guess yeah. what you said, I, I did kind of do that a little bit. Um, yeah. Cause when you're going during the rut, I mean, it's, you just never know. You might have a deer who's never been in that area come through and you just might walk by if you, you just got to be there. Yep. Yep. Um, you know, it can happen at any moment. All it takes is one hot dough, right? Exactly. 
So that happened. Uh, let's see. It was uh, so first first hunt was Monday afternoon. Didn't see much. Uh, next morning, I hunted the same spot. Uh, so that would have been Tuesday morning, and then uh, Tuesday at lunch, got down, tore my tore my setup down, and went off to a new area we'd never been before, but had some great great pinch points. It was in a big swamp, and it was kind of it was potholed with little ponds. Um, and I set up in between two of the bigger ponds, not, not really in between, but on the end of it to, you know, where's a nice little funnel. And it mm-hmm. was, this place was just completely destroyed with buck sign. I mean, there were scrapes and rubs everywhere. Uh, and, and that night actually, you know, first, first sit, best sit, right. Um, yep. I, uh, I, I rattled in a, a, a great buck. I'm going to call it a, conservatively a 140 inch eight pointer i think he was honestly closer to mid mid 140s even high 140s pushing 150 he was a really big buck and it would have been the, the second biggest buck i ever killed and i ended up you know, taking a stupid shot i shouldn't have done it it was late and this this buck <laughs> he came in looking for that for those two bucks that were fighting when i had rattled and he was less than 15 yards away for nearly 15 minutes never gave me a clear shot he was just standing wow. there looking around calm as could be um it was really it was really frustrating i was at full draw on this buck three different times and he he never he never gave me a clear shot and and then you know as it was getting dark he walked through one little area that w- wasn't a good shot but i i kind of forced it and um made a bad shot to this day I'm not a hundred percent sure if I hit the deer or not. Have you, have you seen the video, the, that YouTube video? I haven't gotten to it yet, so I haven't. Okay. So I got it on, I got it on video. got the whole thing on video and, uh, it's on my I'm YouTube all, I'm channel. I'm only, I'm only on, on episode one right now. Okay. Well, you're, you're, not- I, I finished episode one. I got to move on to episode two. <laughs> uh, you're not missing like very said, much. I'm not a very good I've, entertainer. I've been busy. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. Um, but anyway, the reason I bring that up is I got the shot on camera and it looks like I hit the deer back and high. Um, at the time of the shot, I thought the deer was standing still. But then when we reviewed the footage, uh, it was dark enough to where he was actually moving forward. So I, if, you ha- if I had to say, you know, if you had a gun to my head, I would say that I hit the deer in the like the back strap area right in front of his right in front of the hams kind of right in front of his hips nice and high okay. that's what i would guess um and that's i'm 80 percent sure of that but i could have missed clean but i never found the arrow so that leads me to b- believe that i actually hit the deer and did you didn't find any blood either then or hair i never found anything uh, i looked that night uh it like when i got down it was already dark and uh I had, I thought that I missed right when I took the shot. Um, I thought that I missed the deer completely. So I wasn't expecting to find anything. So when I walked over there, I didn't see any blood, didn't see any hair, didn't see any, you know, crazy running tracks where it looked like the deer stumbled or anything like that. I uh, didn't find my arrow, but I just kind of overlooked it. It was really, really thick. I said, okay, it probably just slid in the grass. It's under the ground and I'll find it, you know, in the morning or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we go back, we watch the footage, of course, in the hotel and, and it looks like I hit the deer. So then I had a sleepless night, obviously go back in the morning. I hunt. Um, I had a really hard time sitting still, uh, just thinking about that. And so mm-hmm. I got down a little bit early and 
went and searched around again, no blood, no hair, no running tracks. Uh, I walked, I, like I said, this place was kind of littered with water. So I walked to a bunch of, bunch of ponds, uh, thinking if he was hitting the liver or something, he'd go to water. Uh, nothing. I, I didn't find a single sign of a wounded animal. Uh, I did a bunch of concentric circles, you know, from the point of where I thought the point of impact was and did that for a couple of hours. And I, I never found the first sign And this, in this, like I said, it was a marsh. So it was so incredibly thick and without having, you know, kind of a direction of travel or some idea of which way to look, it was nearly impossible. Okay. Um, it's like searching for a needle in the haystack. It was, it was, it was truly a needle in a haystack and, and I never found anything. So you're not using lighted knocks then, right? I have, I, I usually do, but I ran out and I didn't buy any more in front of this trip for this trip. So no, I did not have a light okay. knock. Um, I do now I've, I've bought them again, but, um, no, I didn't. That would have made a big difference. Okay. Because yeah, I, I really, I love the lighted knocks before, um, before they were Pope and Young legal, I wasn't using them, but, um, actually when I first got back big into bow hunting after grad school, the, um, the guy at the shop had set me up with pink fletchings. And, you know, my first reaction was, you're going to give me pink fletchings. Come on. <laughs> and he looks at me, he goes, listen, there's nothing else pink in the woods. And I really took that to heart and he was dead right. And I've actually gone further and I use pink arrow wraps with my pink fletchings. And I was using that solely until, um, the lighted knocks were Pope and Young legal. <laughs> and I can really, I can track that arrow better in the air with the pink fletchings. I buy it. But so does that mean you're going to change your, uh, your name on the forum to pink squirrel? I'll think about it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's fair. Hey, uh, but, um, guys on the forum, I- y'all need to send uh pink squirrel, like a whole bunch of private <laughs> messages telling him he needs to change his name. I'm going to have to go create that username now, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that's funny. Uh, you're right though. I, I mean, mean, it's, it makes sense. Yeah. So I was using that and I've since started using the lighted knocks and, um, they're, they're just so helpful. They just help you track where you think you hit the deer and you're still not all, you know, the moment of impact is so quick. You're still not always right, but it at least gives you a better idea where you think you hit. And then, I mean, if it just makes it easier to find the arrow, it it just gives you so much information that I, I I won't hunt without them anymore. No, I agree. And my brother was he was all over me. He's like, "You idiot! You know why didn't you have your lighted knocks on?" I was like, "I know, I know, I know. I'm an idiot. I should have." Um, but you know, you live and you learn. Oh yeah, absolutely. It happens. So. Uh, so I'm pretty bummed uh, after that, and you know, I tried to keep a good attitude because. You're definitely not going to be successful if you have a crappy attitude. And um, so I, I, I tried to keep a good attitude. I went and found some a new spot uh, to get out of there because I'd pretty much ruined this. So this is what, uh, Monday afternoon. Um, so we hunted, I hunted different places from Monday afternoon all the way through Friday. And I ended up coming back to that same area on Friday afternoon. Uh I saw a lot of other bucks during the week, uh, a lot of, you know, little small one-year-old, two-year-old bucks, some eight points, and one that was a little tempting uh, towards the end of the week, but I, I held out, and my goal was to take home a Pope and Young, 
and he wasn't quite okay. Pope and Young. I would have guessed him at, you know, 115, 120. So he was he was close, but he wasn't there. Um, mm-hmm. So I passed him up and I uh, never saw another big buck. Uh, that was that was my opportunity was on on Monday and uh, that was it. Well, it still sounds like a great time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I, I had a blast. And and my brother, he actually shot the biggest bow buck that he's ever gotten. His his only, first and only public land buck, his first DIY hunt buck, uh, his first saddle deer, and his first saddle buck. So that's pretty cool for him. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, if anyone gets to take a look, it's a pretty cool looking buck too. Yeah, it was a really old buck, um, really huge buck. I, he was live weight, probably 250 plus. I mean, he was a monster and, uh, he, his rack wasn't all that big. He was, uh, he had broken off both brow tines from fighting and he had broken off his, uh, let's see, I think it was his right side G3. So he was a he was a, an eight frame a mainframe eight, but broken down to a five point. So he's like one of the best five points you'd ever see. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, and it is actually kind of a cool setup because, like I said, my brother doesn't have a whole lot of experience hunting public land or, you know, kind of going mobile and getting after him. So the spot where he was in, I I picked it out for him. He was using one of my tree saddles. He was using my lone wolf sticks with aiders. He was using my tether. He was using my lineman belt. <laughs> he was using my uh, Ernie Outdoors platform that I gave him. So it was it was my whole complete setup, and I told him basically within fifty yards of where he should set up, and he went and did it, and he got on that buck. So that was pretty cool. You were part of the hunt. You were there with him. Yeah, I definitely was. It was a, it was a great time. And then, but yeah, go ahead. But that that's even that's even better doing that with your brother. The two of you being there, and, and one of you actually getting one. That's just really cool. Yeah, and you know, I've 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 since told people, you know, for for us to be, you know, from the south and not have a whole lot of Midwest experience other than with hunting with outfitters. You know, we've we've hunted with outfitters in in uh, Wisconsin, and you know, kind of we've hunted with outfitters, but. Um, never really done it ourselves on a trip like that. So that was fun. And to get to both of us, get on quality bucks, I thought it was a win. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and then kind of one more funny story uh, out of this trip and then we'll, we'll get to the, the interview here. But, uh, so like on, let's see, it would have been like Sunday, one of the scouting days, we found this little 40 acre parcel that was landlocked, um, with private land there was ag fields all around it but a a river was the southern border and you know we when i hear river i hear public land you know rivers are public access public waterways so i thought hey you know if we as long as we walk in the river you know right on the bank of the river that's public access so let's go check this little 40 acre parcel out so we do we go check it out and this place is just tore up with rubs and scrapes we found rubs on you know trees bigger than our thighs you know at chest height and we're thinking good god this has to be a monster so we decide that bobby my brother decides that he's going to go back and hunt it and he hunts it like wednesday morning or something like that and right as the sun comes up he hears honking out towards the road like a, a horn honking and he's like what in the world is that and he thought you know maybe it was a, a deer running in front of a car and they're trying to um you know, get it out of the road or something. And so he just kind of ignores it, whatever. And, and 10 minutes later, he hears a, hears honking again. And 
he said every 10 minutes for like the next hour, this honking was crazy. And so finally he puts it together that, Hey, somebody's honking at his car. And he's like, ah, you know, he kind of felt weird about it since, since it was landlocked. And, um, although we didn't think we were trespassing, you know, we thought we did the right thing. Uh, he gets down and he, he takes his stuff down he goes out to the truck and there's a note, note on his car that says, Hey, you're trespassing as you are. We assume you're hunting the, the public piece, the public 40 acres. And just so you know, it's, you know, trespassing, whatever. Here's my phone number. Please give me a call if you want to talk about it. Bobby uh, ends up calling the farmer and he's real nice, real apologetic. He says, Hey, I'm so sorry. You know, we, we didn't trespass on your land. We just want you to know we, we walked through the river. And so we, we, we didn't actually trespass. And, and the farmer says, Oh, well, you know, and, and actually you did because in Illinois, that river is considered unnavigable. And if the river is considered unnavigable by the state, then I can actually own the river. So you did trespass by walking down the river. And I had never heard that law before. So I guess my ignorance is not an excuse, but um, my brother had never heard that before. I don't know if have you ever heard that before, Scott, that the, if a river is unnavigable, it can be owned. I haven't heard it before. I, I definitely could see it being a gray area. It's something where I would be concerned about just like you guys said, kind of feel weird about doing it with without knowing for yeah. sure. Yeah, and that's kind of the way we felt, you know. So, so when when he talked to the farmer, um, again, he was. It's just like around here they they reduced our bow hunting safety zone to 150 feet. Just because you can hunt 50 yards from someone's house doesn't mean it doesn't feel weird when you're yeah. doing it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I would, I would definitely feel weird doing that, even though it was totally illegal. And and we did. We felt a little not like we were, like we were breaking the law. It just felt a little strange doing it that way. Um, yeah. So you know, Bobby calls the guy and he he's real apologetic. Says, "Hey, I'm so sorry." And so the guy tells him this explanation, and Bobby says, "Man, I am so sorry." You know, if we had known that rule, you know, we're from Florida where we have water everywhere and all of the water is is public access. So I'm so sorry. Uh, you know, we, we just won't hunt it again. You, you have my word. We will not mess with that piece again. And he, and the guy goes, Hey, you know what? Before I let you go, he says, he says, this happens to me every single season. He says, hunters hunt that piece and they go through the river and they think they're doing it right. And he says, every single one of them argues with me. And they tell me that I'm wrong and that I don't know what I'm talking about. He said, you are the first guy that has ever been nice and apologetic and, you know, talk to me like a human being. And Bobby's like, wow, okay, well, that's pretty cool. And the guy says, you know, hey, you know, you have my number. He says, if you need anything at all while you guys are in Illinois, he says, you call me. And so I thought, you know, that's pretty neat, man. You know, it's, it, it, you know, you catch more, catch more flies with honey than you do vinegar, right? That's exactly the phrase going through my mind right now. Um, Yes. So that's what we're thinking. So fast, this is like, like I said, like day two of the hunt or something. Uh, Fast forward to the end of the hunt, Bobby kills this buck. Um, And so now we're scrambling to find a place to, you know, get it frozen and all the things they have to do to take care of the animal. So Bobby's like, Hey, why don't I call that farmer back and see if maybe he has a, has a freezer or, you know, something he wouldn't mind us using. So he calls him. He explains the situation. Hey, we got a deer down. You know, is there a place in town you recommend we go to freeze the animal, a taxidermist that'll let us put it in the cooler, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he's like, hey, hang on one second. I'll call you, I'll call you back in just a couple minutes. 
So he call, he he hangs up the phone, calls us back in a couple of minutes, and he gives us an address. He says, "Hey, go to this address, and these guys will help you out." So we go, you know, we load up, we go to the Bobby's by himself. At this point, I was still hunting. Uh, he goes to this address. It turns out it's a farm owned by some guys on Bill Winkie's Midwest Whitetail. They run the small farm segment of uh, Bill Winkie's okay. Midwest Whitetail show, and they're up there hunting. So Bobby gets out of the truck. And they're like in full camo and they're going out, they're heading out to the woods. Uh, we don't know these guys from Adam. Obviously we never met them before. They don't, we don't know who they are. They don't know who we are. And they're, they're literally walking out the door to go hunting. And they said, Hey, yeah, we got a call from, you know, so-and-so. And, and, uh, they told us about your situation. They said, Hey, we're leaving, but we're going to leave the door unlocked. We're going to leave the lodge unlocked. There's a skinning rack out back. You have freezers. Yeah, there's beer in the fridge. There's food in the fridge. Our house is your house. Whatever you need, there's trash bags in the in the in the kitchen. Go do whatever you need to do. Uh, that is awesome. Yeah, it was crazy, and these were the nicest. You can't guys. make that up. No, you really can't. And we ended up hanging out with those guys a couple nights, and um, it was just a really good experience. So if if you, if you get a chance, uh, go check out Andy and David on the uh, Midwest Whitetail website and watch some of their small farm videos. It's pretty cool. Yeah, we definitely will. And uh, are you going to get the, them in the saddles? I tried. Believe me, I tried. <laughs> uh, if you When you start watching the videos, you'll see that me and Bobby were wearing our Saddle Hunter sweatshirts and hats a lot. And, and they, they asked us, they were like, hey, what's the, what's the SH all about? What is that? And so I broke it down. And of course, I tried to, I tried to indoctrinate them with Saddle Hunter. But uh, I don't know if it worked or not. We'll see. Well, we'll we can keep on them. Yeah. Well, man, hey, I have... I have been talking long enough. Uh, what do you say we get to this interview? Sounds good. Let's bring them on. Yep. So we've got uh, for you guys uh, this this episode. We have got Jared Schaefer, Flinging Arrows, uh, from West Virginia, and he has had a heck of a whitetail season. He's got three bucks down, and he was kind enough to come on to the show and talk us through his season. So, without further ado, let's get to that conversation. Jared, how is West Virginia treating you, man? Oh, I'm good, brother. How are you doing? We're doing great, and uh, I am here sitting in Georgia, and Scott, you are in where? New Jersey. New Jersey, and I probably have the best weather out of all three of you guys. It's 65 and sunny today. How about y'all? Yeah, it was. Actually, it's actually been uh, pretty decent here. It's been cold in the mornings, but warming up in the afternoon, so mid-60s here. And uh, not that I've been able to get out, but I probably have the best deer hunting weather. It's been in the the high thirties, low forties. That's great. I'm I'm a little jealous. I I enjoy sixty five degrees, but it certainly doesn't feel like hunting weather. That's about as good as it gets down there, isn't it? <laughs> it does get cold. Uh, last year it got in the twenties, and and mm. you know not for very long. It would be cold in the mornings, and then warm back up by midday. You know, back up in the fifties or sixties even, but. Uh, for the most part, the weather is is pretty nice, even though it doesn't really lend itself to cold weather deer hunting. You know, the yeah. deer, deer is still there; they got to move, right? Yeah, that, well, that's what I keep telling myself, but <laughs> I certainly don't see them. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, we'll get started with your story, uh, Jared. If you would give us a quick rundown for the folks that uh, that that don't know you, that are new to the new to the forum and new to the podcast. So I guess everybody's new to the podcast now, but. Uh, go ahead and tell us who you are, where you're from, and just a, a quick kind of elevator pitch of your your uh, hunting pedigree. 
Yeah, sure. So my name is Jared Schaefer. I'm 30 years old, live in Fairmont, West Virginia. I am flinging arrows on the Saddle Hunter forum. So if you see me on there, that's me. Um, been hunting ever since I was uh, seven years old. I don't know. Since I was big enough to walk, I guess. Um, been saddle hunting since 2014. So always been kind of a mobile hunter. Used a climbing stand and lugged that thing around for years. But uh, started getting into the self-filming game and the weight got to be an issue. So I kind of started looking into saddles and it's been downhill ever since. Oh, I hear you there. Now kind of mm-hmm. walk us through your, uh, your saddle setup, would you, if you would. So talk me through kind of your first saddle, what you started out with and, and then the kind of the evolution of where you ended up with now. Yeah. So I started with the Guido's web and, uh, I really liked it, but you know, I kind of found the weight, you know, not to be, uh, not exactly what I was looking for. Still a little bit heavy and bulky, but super comfortable. I used it for a year, killed a couple bucks out of it. And then uh, the next year I went to a Arrow Hunter Evolution and uh, messed around with it a little bit. I ended up using the, uh, the waist belt from it, kind of like, you know, you do a sit drag. So I used that for a year. And then I went to a modified sit drag last year. I really liked it. And then the, the Kestrel come out this year and, you know, I had to buy one of those too. So I bought that and I've used it all season and, uh, man, they had a home run with that thing. It's awesome. Scott, how do you like your Kestrel? Oh, I love it. I think you're one of the only people in the, the country that doesn't have one yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right. I don't have one. Um, I don't know what I'm waiting on. I should probably take the plunge. I just love my sit drag so much. I'm I'm not sure if I could take the weight penalty. Yeah, I have to agree with Jared. Actually, I started out with a size one, and um, I was I was happy with it. Um, but you know, no one had tried both sizes back to back, or at least no one outside a new tribe. So I thought I would um, when popped one popped up on the forum. I thought I would pick it up and try it out. Because I was wondering how the uh, the smaller size was going to fit when I started bulking up for the cold weather. And I got this size 2, and I like it even better than the size 1. It just the, um, the bridge attachment loops come up a little bit further out in front of me. The lineman belt loops are a little further in front of me. And just like I expected, now that I'm wearing my coveralls and stuff going up the tree, it, uh, it, it fits me really nice. So I don't think you can... I don't really think you can go um too big with that saddle i actually probably will end up using that one all through the year next year oh nice yeah i'd actually thought about that with the you know layering up for colder weather that the size two might work better but uh my size one's been working okay so that's good to hear that's that's something i think that a lot of people are curious about with these saddles you know with there only being two sizes and and with them being kind of a weird numbering system, you know, one and two, as opposed to small, medium, large, extra large, et cetera. Uh, I know I've had that question is I'm kind of, I'm on the smaller end, but with the trophy line tree saddle, which is, you know, pretty similar uh, in design to the Kestrel. There are a lot of differences, don't get me wrong, but it's this very similar concept. Uh, I felt the smaller, the better. So it's, it's good to hear you guys say that those sizings that, you know, the size one from new tribe is pretty good for you guys. Yeah. And, um, 
the sizes with any saddle, it's a very personal thing. And it's unfortunate to say, but you kind of have to try it out and see what size works for you with all the different models. And that was evident from the uh, the tro- trophy line from the beginning. If you didn't have the right size, um, you needed to try the right size without giving up. Otherwise, you wouldn't be happy. Yeah, so I guess, Jared, have you had any issues with the sizing on your Kestrel? No, no issues at all. It's uh, pretty much perfect for me. You know, I'm a fairly small guy, I guess, like, you know, 170. 5'11", so I don't have a butt to speak of, so it, it works good for me. <laughs> yeah, see, that's probably a little bit of the difference with me. I mean, I'm I'm not a big guy either, but I'm a bit stockier, and um, I, I like to say I'm like a six-foot guy in a five-foot-six body, so <laughs> I, I think that's why the size two kind of uh, fit me a little bit better. Yeah. Well, that's right. good to know. Uh, so, Jared, getting to kind of the the meat and potatoes of this part of the podcast, you killed a fantastic buck this year in West Virginia. And, and if I'm not mistaken, this was your best West Virginia buck of all time, right? No, this one actually wasn't. The one I killed last year was my best in West Virginia. I killed him out of a saddle as well, but uh, this buck I killed this year, he was a good solid eight pointer. He was, uh, you know, he wasn't a giant by any means, but he was, he was a good buck. Okay, but then you, when you went to Ohio, that Ohio buck was your best buck ever, correct? Yeah, yeah, he was my first gross Pope and Young, and uh, yeah, he was, he's definitely my best buck up until this past one I just shot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which kind of came out of the blue. I don't think you or anyone else was expecting that to happen, right? No, and I didn't shoot him out of the saddle, so I guess we'll leave him out of the conversation for today. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, well, talk us through that first West Virginia buck. Let's kind of stick to the timeline. You know, uh, talk us through kind of your your scouting and, and how you pegged him down. And then if, if you can, maybe pay special attention to how hunting out of a saddle maybe give you an advantage or – Maybe it didn't. Maybe a, a tree stand would have worked as well. And if that's if that's the case, and just talk us through that, and uh, and so we can all learn from your hunt. Yeah. So this uh, this hunt actually started back in March. I would say I do a lot of postseason scouting, and uh, I'm a big follower of Dan Infault and the Hunting Beast. So I spend a lot of that postseason time, you know, looking for buck beds and bedding areas. And uh, I located this area and. Uh, Ended up throwing a trail camera in there this summer, and it was just full of bucks. I mean, there was like six or seven, eight different bucks in there, and, uh, you know, all pretty nice deer. And uh, figured out how to access it. Needed, I needed like a northern, you know, north-type wind. And uh, the, I hunted it the very first day. We had a northeast wind. I snuck in there. So I climbed the tree with my spikes, and uh, that buck was – he was bedded 40 yards from me and he stood up and I almost got a shot at him that very first hunt. And, uh, I watched him walk down a transition line headed towards some acorns. And, uh, actually there were six different bucks bedded in there that evening and, uh, never got a shot at one, but I was able to sneak out of there. And then a couple of days later we had the same type of wind. Now let me, and- let me interrupt you for a second, Jared. Now yeah. go back to, you said that you, you went in and climbed in with your spikes. Talk us through yep. that process for some someone that may be not familiar with spikes or uh, tree gaffs. Uh, talk us through how that works. Yeah, so I have the Climrite aluminum spikes, and um, 
real super lightweight. Um, just have a lineman's belt and a rope in my case. And, uh, you know, if you take your time and climb real slow and, you know, you don't have to kick the spikes in or anything, just, just slowly walk up the tree basically. And, uh, you can get as high as you want. And, and these are the same kind of spikes that, that, that like a, uh, a lineman or an arborist would use, right? Right. Yep. Exactly. Okay. So you're, you're finished with, with this first hunt. You've seen these six or eight bucks. You couldn't, you didn't get a shot. Uh, you climbed down, you didn't spook them. What happened next? So I hunted another bedding area that I'd scouted for a different wind. Didn't have any luck that day. So a day or two later, maybe three days, we had another northeast wind. So I snuck back in and I decided to hunt the same tree as the first night. So as I'm climbing, I'm halfway up the tree and a limb falls out of a tree, maybe 20 yards from me. There was a pretty good wind blowing. And another buck was bedded in that same bed (laughs) and he jumped up and walked right by me at 20 yards with my bow on the ground. So I didn't get a shot at him, and uh, I think that was the only buck I saw that night. So snuck out, you know, same exit route, snuck out, didn't spook anything, and then that leads me to the third hunt in that spot. Okay, so this is the third hunt in this spot, not the third hunt of your season. You've been hunting other places in between, depending on the wind and other things, right? Exactly, yeah. So for I have several different bedding areas that I hunt, you know, just based on whatever the wind is that day. So the the hunts in this spot were kind of spaced out. So I didn't overpressure the area. So the, the third hunt Northeast wind again, um, I actually, the buck that I was after the one that I saw the very first day, um, he was bedded closer to my entry route and I jumped him on the way in. He was literally like 10 yards away. So he jumped up. He didn't really know what I was. He didn't smell me. He just saw me and just kind of trotted off. So remembering what uh, Dan Enfault talks about, you know, doing the the bump and dump where if you bump a deer out of his bed to set up, you know, on that bed, hoping he comes back that same day. So with that in mind, I, um, I picked a tree. Uh, maybe 60 yards from where I jumped him up. It was just a real small, crooked little maple tree. And uh, there's no way you could have got a stand in it. Um, I actually had my muddy sticks that day, my muddy pro sticks. And I got two sticks high. So I was about 10 feet off the ground, maybe. It's pretty low. And I was in the middle of getting set up. And I had my tether at like chest level. So I didn't even have it you know, set up normal height or anything. And that buck (laughs) comes walking right back in to 30 yards. And he actually beds down at under 30 yards and I'm not even set up yet. That's crazy. (laughs) Now, what about this tree made it to where you couldn't, you said you couldn't get a stand in it. And, and I, by that, I'm, I assume you mean like a lock on stand or a, or a uh, ladder stand or even a climbing stand. Uh, but what about it? it, correct me if I'm wrong there, and then kind of explain why you don't think you would have been able to get one in there. It was leaning really weird, and it had 
several limbs in it that I went around. So you probably could have got a lock on in it, but it, you know, you probably would have had to do some work, you know, trimming out limbs or whatever, but. You're saying it wouldn't have been easy to get in there mobile with a lock on even. Right. Not that fast anyway, because I was, I'd say I climbed it in two minutes. (laughs) Right. Pretty quick. I was up that thing, but uh, it was a rodeo. Um, I was, I was leaning way back. Like I wasn't, my tether wasn't set right. And he came in kind of behind me. And it was just a really super awkward setup, even in the saddle. And uh, I ended up hanging like that for almost a half hour, I think. It was just absolutely brutal. I had all my weight on one leg, kind of kicking myself away from the tree. So, But I knew if I held that position, as soon as he stood up, I could kill him. And Jared, isn't it funny how if you were just hanging like that, you probably couldn't do it for a minute, but when there's a buck that you know is there, you can do it for 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah. It was, yeah, it was like you know, doing a full body workout with one leg. So. Yeah. I know what just what you're talking about because I've been there. Yeah. yeah, so I knew if I, you know, you know, worked through the pain that I would eventually get my shot. And he did stand up and uh, walked even closer to me, and then he bedded down again. So now he's bedded at 20 yards maybe a little over 20 yards, but luckily he didn't, you know, stay bedded for long and he stood up and you know, I was able to draw back on him. I made a terrible shot on this deer and I would say that it was just my awkward position and rushing just to get an arrow in him, but yeah, I made a bad shot on him. Okay. Well, so here's something that, that makes me, that description makes me think about. So if you were using a, let's just say a lock on cause you could have theoretically gotten a lock on in there with maybe a, some work from a pole saw or limb saw or something. So let's assume that you would have had a lock on stand on your back. I don't think you get that opportunity to kill that buck because you know, with the, with the tree saddle, you've got your lineman belt. And like you said, you're, you're, were you tethered in at this point or just with the lineman belt? I was tethered in. If, if I would have had my lineman's belt on, it would have actually been better but I had already taken it off. So yeah, Yeah, I I have to agree with you, Greg, actually. I, um, I had a a similar situation with a buck this year. I was climbing up the tree. I got in the tree pretty early. It was October 28th and this buck came cruising by. And, um, if I had my bow on me, he he stopped and I could have got a shot. And, probably 90% of the time I actually carry my bow on my back up the tree. I have used one of those, uh, primo slings, but this was when I'm climbing mobile, I don't always use it because if, um, it's just safer not to, to, to climb with it sometimes depending on the situation. So I'll just haul it up then. But if I had that bow on my back, I would have got a shot too. And I would have been hooked on my lineman's belt hanging there, but it wouldn't have been a problem, but I, but I blew it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it happens. Um, I've definitely blown my fair share of opportunities this season. This is this for me. This season has been like the thing of nightmares. Yet at the same time, the thing of dreams because I've been on good quality bucks. Um, I just haven't been able to seal the deal. Yeah, yeah, it makes it tough. Yeah, it happens. Um, it's all part of the game. It is. It is. Okay, so so Jared, so you're you're hanging hanging from the tree 
you're just a, a little ways up. This buck has come back in after he's bedded, you know, once or twice in front of you. You finally get a shot and you make a bad shot. What did you do? Did you go in and start tracking right away or did you kind of back out for the night because you knew it was a, a bad uh, hit hit location or what? Well, he was quartered, quartered toward me and I hit him tight behind the shoulder and I, I saw the exit hole and it was way back and I watched him walk off and I knew that if I just got out of there, he would bed pretty close. It's just such a thick, nasty area. I knew that he wouldn't go far. And uh, the bad thing was it was 80 degrees with rain in the forecast. So it's like the worst thing you could possibly imagine. But I knew that if I bumped him, that it was, it was over with anyway. So I took a chance and backed out and came back the next day. And luckily he had only gone about 200 yards and uh, it cooled down enough in the night that his meat was actually fine. So really lucked out there and had a nice buck on the ground. That's awesome. So you notched your first West Virginia tag for the season uh, with a great with a great eight point, your second best West Virginia buck of all time. And then you're like, hey, you know what? I can top this. I can go to Ohio and kill an even bigger one. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, so we it's kind of funny because I scouted all over Ohio on public land, um, you know, postseason, March, April, took lots of days off work to go find hunting areas and then um we ended up getting a lease over there like uh well we signed the paper september 30th which was like oh that's really late in the game yeah so i walked the property i walked the whole property one time and uh i kicked up a good buck out of his bed <laughs> so i marked that bed on my gps and we went back, um, let's see, we did go over one, one weekend early season just to put up tree stands and for my, you know, my hunting buddies, they tree stands or whatever. So put up tree stands for them, put out some cameras and then we went back. It was going to be a four day trip end of October. So I'd been eyeballing this bedding area on, you know, maps, aerial maps and everything. And uh, figured out I needed a northwest wind, sneak in there. And we finally got that on Saturday. I think it was October 28th. And it was uh, raining, had a good cold front. So I snuck in downwind of that bedding area. And uh, I didn't have a clue how I was going to set up. I didn't know the tree situation or anything like that. So I had my spikes with me again. This was an evening hunt, Jared? Yeah, yeah, evening hunt. Um, went in pretty early. It was, I went in like one o'clock pouring down the rain. So I had actually put a camera up in this area, um, the weekends or the couple weeks prior when we, uh, set up stands and stuff. So I pulled the card out of that camera and I picked a tree and, uh, climbed up and I ran through that card and there was, several good bucks using that area in the daylight too. And actually the two days prior, the biggest buck we have pictures of was on that camera. So I was super pumped, you know, that evening, you know, cause the you know, cold front coming in, chances were pretty high. So got set up and thinking it was, oh shoot, 
4.30 maybe, I look behind me and I see a main beam sticking out behind a tree and it's the second biggest buck we have on camera and he's just feeding his way. He'd come out of his bed, he dropped down the hill and he was walking right toward me and uh, he ended up giving me a 22 yard shot and that was that. <laughs> That's so awesome when it comes together like that. It doesn't happen very often where you can go in there one time and, and get on a buck. So well done for you, man. Yeah, it was, I couldn't believe it happened, you know, that fast and you know, it just seemed like it worked exactly like I planned it. So that was pretty awesome. Hey, talk me through the shot. So you're, the deer's coming in, he's to your, to your left, to your right behind you. And then kind of you know do you have to what do you have to do with your platform uh up in the tree what are you using for a platform did you have to shoot from a funky position or uh you know were you leaning way away from the tree kind of talk us through the the mechanics of how you made the shot with the saddle yeah that's actually a really good question so he came in directly behind me kind of over my right shoulder if i'm facing the tree which is probably your worst angle in a saddle maybe that is the worst no doubt about it that's the that's the dreaded spot yeah so um i kind of i'm using a xop seat on a post cam lock to a tree it's a you know it's pretty popular platform option on the forum a lot of guys using that and that's what i'm using um so all i did was basically stand up on the platform and just turned around like I was in a tree stand, basically. And um, the bridge for my saddle was kind of going over my left shoulder, if that makes sense. Yep. And it basically just kind of holds you there. You know, it's it's a pretty stable setup. And uh, it really wasn't awkward at all. He come walking in. Um, the bad thing was, he was about ready to walk into my shooting lane, and I drew back and... You know, as every buck does when you draw back on him, he just stops and starts feeding. So I had to let down. And then I drew back on him again. Same deal happened. He didn't step into my lane. And then the third time, man, I, I held it back for a really long time. But he finally turned to leave. I, I don't know if he caught a little bit of my scent or something, but he was getting a little nervous. But he turned and... uh quartered away from me and I was able to slip an arrow through some brush and put a perfect shot on him. So I got a question for you, Jared. Um, if you get a chance, could you actually uh, get someone to take a picture of you in that position so we can see what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I could definitely do that. Cause I don't hunt off a platform like you guys. And I know everyone's always talking about the advantages and, and shooting like that. But um, I'd like to see how you did that. Cause for me in that, type of situation what i would have done uh, i would have like placed my right hip onto the tree and kind of like spun around i probably would have been just with one foot on a step hanging out to shoot that direction so it, it would be interesting to see uh see and look at the differences that's a good point scott um i've actually taken both of those shots um i shot my first mule deer scott exactly the way that you just mentioned uh, my right hip was on the tree. I had one knee on the tree, pushing myself away to kind of stable to stabilize my shot. Um, and 
he came in, you know, if I'm, if I, if my back is six o'clock, he was at like maybe five thirty, and really awkward position was able to make the shot. And Jared, I've also practiced that shot. Like you're talking about standing on the platform. And I got to yep. say the platform way is a lot easier. You're basically standing up straight with your yep. back against the tree. If I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So you just spin around, you know, the, for, for those unfamiliar with the XOP seat, it's basically, uh, it's a, well, it, it is a tree stand seat. Uh, so it's a lot smaller than a typical lock on tree stand platform, but it's enough, you know, for, for both feet to fit on there pretty comfortably. And you, you just stand up and turn around, lean backwards against the tree. And it's a really stable, stable, uh, way to make a shot. I mean, Jared, you, you feel the same way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I also shoot to my right, kind of doing the same thing. I'll go over my bridge and just kind of put all my weight onto the platform and, uh, just kind of turn my feet to the, to the right, I would guess. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the platform for me is, uh, I've, I've done the steps and stuff, but, uh, just for me, the platform works awesome. Yeah, I agree. I prefer the platform. I still hunt off of steps probably, oh, I would say at least 50% of the time. Um, Maybe less than that, actually, because I'm hunting mostly mobile now. And with the mobile setup, I'm using the platform, you know, 95% of the time. So I'm probably on a platform on 60, 60 to 70% of my hunts now. And uh, so, so, Scott, you still haven't made the jump, huh? No, and, and I'm probably going to get my butt kicked someday for, for putting this to a recording. But I, I don't know if, if I'll ever be moving over to one. <laughs> I just... Um, I bought one, I put it together, I took it out in the backyard and put it on the tree. And it, to me, it's big. I, I just can't see myself carrying it into the woods. Yeah, that is a trade-off. I, I 100% agree with you, Scott. It It is heavy. Um, comparatively, Especially, comparatively, you know, we're talking yeah, comparing with tree stands and whatnot, but it, for yeah, for a saddle hunter who's, on, you know, trying to minimize what we're taking into the woods, it is heavy, I agree. And I, I just, I don't have any problem standing on the, any of the steps that I stand on. So like the trade-off isn't worth it to me right now. Nope, definitely. Yeah. Hey, you know, hunt your own hunt, right? You know, you, you, uh, you yeah. gotta do what works no. for you. But that, yeah, that being said, if that's what gets guys into the saddle and it works for them, I'm all for it. And uh, I want to make another point too, is that's the awesome thing about hunting out of a saddle is you can you can hunt so many different ways, you know, with a platform or with steps or, you know, using the top of a stick, you know, it's like whatever fits the situation you can, you know, you can go with that. So that's, you- a, that's a great point, Jared, because we get new guys coming onto the form all the time asking, and I, you, you just got to try, try everything out and find out what works for you. I mean, it's, it's not the cheapest way to get there. That's for sure. But <laughs> yeah. you can pick one way and go with it, but um, it might not be the best way for you. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. And, and Jared, 100% in your corner, that, that is one of my favorite things about the saddle is that it, it is, uh, there's so many options, you know, you can, you can hunt, one way with it for this particular type of hunt maybe you'll have a a type of tree that would work better with this type of platform or climbing method and then you know you go to a different part of the country where something 
different may be required and the saddle gives you that versatility to, to kind of attack it from every angle. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Well, Jared, I am pretty pumped that you uh, decided to come on the podcast with us and uh, I'm super pumped about the season that you're having. That is three big bucks now that you've gotten on the ground and uh, every one of them was, was pretty impressive. So congratulations to you, man. Well, I appreciate that. It's it's definitely been a crazy year, and if if anybody wants to donate to Fling and Arrow's taxidermy bill, I'm I'm all for that. <laughs> yeah, the checks in the mail. All right, man. Awesome. Well, Scott, what what's uh, what do you have for for Jared before we let him go? Uh, just congrats, man, and maybe next time we'll talk about that that uh, third buck that you got, even though he wasn't in the saddle. I mean, we're just talking about, Oh, that one doesn't count, Scott. No, no, we don't (laughs) care about that one at all. Well, we, we just love hunting. So, (laughs) uh, yeah. Well, thanks again, Jared. Uh, you got any final thoughts for the podcast before we let you go? Uh, I'm just honored to be the first guest. Is that, is that correct? Am I the first one? You are the first, the, the, the very first saddle hunter podcast guest. Well, I appreciate that. Um, thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, we're, and, we're uh, proud to have you, Jared. You were um, definitely one of the first guys that really got into the forum. So you've been with us for a while. You know, that's another cool thing about about kind of the saddle hunter community is that since this this podcast was born out of the forum, the whole point is to get people into into saddle hunting. I mean, we're not doing this podcast to make money or to sell saddles or to sell, you know platforms or bows or anything we're here to teach people how to saddle hunt and you know get on the forum because that is literally the world's largest repository of saddle hunting information yeah and absolutely yep yep so so thanks again man uh sorry go ahead go ahead scott no i was just gonna say and it's growing every day yeah it certainly is it's going it's growing every day and and we're just happy to all be a part of it. So, Jerry, we're going to let you go. And, uh, man, we appreciate you coming on, and we will definitely have you back on the podcast. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. Well, thank you very much to Jared for coming on and sharing all that with us. Uh, congratulations again on such a great year. Um, so we're going to lead into a few final thoughts here. Uh, just recently on the forum, uh, someone posted about uh, Terry Drury taking a, a fall out of the tree. And it sounds like it was pretty bad. So yeah, I um, listened to that podcast, and it sounded like uh, like he got hurt pretty bad. Yeah. So first of all, we're hoping for a speedy recovery to him. Um, very, very popular f- figure in our industry. Um, and I don't know. I we do know that he was climbing on screw and steps. So I I don't know the situation. Um, but it just brings a thought to my mind that I just want to um to let everyone out there using screw in steps know because I've been using screw in steps for a long time. Um, I walk around the woods and I find screw in steps that other hunters put in and you wouldn't believe how often I find people putting these steps in incorrectly. And I've almost put notes on people's trees to let them know that they're incorrectly because I'm really worried that they're going to snap on them. <laughs> That'd so, be funny. Walk up, uh, <laughs> walk up to your own tree and see a note. Hey bro, why don't you fix yeah. your stupid steps? You idiot. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it just, it worries me and it, it's not that hard to put them in correctly. I think uh, it's probably, you just need to know how. So at some point this off season, I'm going to put together a video just showing how to do it correctly. So we'll get that up on saddle hunter TV, but just a quick explanation of how you do it now 
when you're screwing that screw and step in, you want to start with the screw in portion just aimed slightly below horizontal. What that's going to do is when you go all the way around and get tight to the tree, that bottom portion of the L is going to uh, abut right up against the tree. So then when you put your foot on the step, there's not going to be any any flex or any real flex. It's going to be the tree is going to be supporting the metal. And that top portion that goes into the tree, the top L is not going to be able to bend because what I see often is that there's a gap between that bottom portion of the L and the tree. And I've seen it like like a half inch gap before. And every time you step on that step, that metal is bending. And you know, it may work once, it may work twice, it may work 20 times. At some point, the stress on that step is going to cause it to snap. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Scott, because the tree saddle is without a doubt the safest way to hunt, you know, above the ground. But if you're not, if you're climbing without a, without a lineman belt or, you know, without some sort of safety aid, uh, you're not doing yourself any favors, right? Absolutely. I mean, we've talked about it on, on our forum all the time about how, um, how we used to do things. Um, when I was a kid, me and my dad would go out and when we were building our permanent stands, I would hang like a monkey, one hand hanging onto the tree, nailing in with another <laughs> one leg wrapped around the tree, no, not attached to the tree yeah. at all. And like, I look back and it's like, it's, it's amazing. Um, but I know my dad did have a tree stand give out on him once, probably shit, 30 or 40 years ago at this point, but he had a, a very rudimentary seatbelt style, um, safety harness on that did catch him now it it wasn't a pleasant fall but it did save him he has also had a screw and step brake on him and that's actually kind of how we first came about learning how to put them in properly so it's um and and at this point i can hardly imagine setting up a tree without a lineman's belt i um if, if i have a, a tree prepped with screw and steps um i often still use my lineman's belt to climb I don't always do it, but if I am doing a mobile hunt where I'm putting sticks up or steps or whatever, or obviously spurs, whatever it may be, I am always attached to the tree with a lightning spell. Yep. I mean, there is certainly no no setup or no deer that's worth falling and getting hurt for. Yeah. Absolutely. So this is just our uh, our holiday reminder to everyone out there. Just be, be safe. We preach it on the forum all the time, but hunting is our hobby and we just want everyone to come home to your yeah, family just a friendly night. public public service reminder right yeah talking That's about right. screwing steps that makes me think about john eberhardt that dude like he sets up like you kind of dozens of trees every year with screwing steps and he's never taken a fall and um you know you know knock on wood kind of thing and so they can be safe, obviously, as long as you're doing, you know, kind of the things that you brought up, Scott, and making sure you install them correctly, you're inspecting them every season and et cetera, et cetera. You're just being smart about it. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've put thousands of screw in steps into the trees and I've never had one break mm-hmm. on me. And uh, just on a quick follow up to that too, is if you're using screw in steps and you're not using the ultimate tree step tool, you need to get one. I think it was 20 or 30 bucks and the, it, it makes putting in a screw and step so much easier. You'll, you'll, you won't believe you ever put one in. I bought one and one. I love it. It's the best thing ever. Yep. I agree. Yeah. Um, I agree completely. You know, t- 
talking about John Eberhart, you know, he is kind of what I consider, you know, one of the godfathers of saddle hunting. Um, he's the first one that I ever encountered that was doing it. I know Scott, you, the way that, um, you were introduced into it, uh, with maybe with your dad, but, uh, with John Eberhart as well. And then I know a lot of guys on the forum, their first experience with saddle hunting was through John Eberhart. And, you know, I've read his books. Um, I'm a big, big fan of John Eberhart. So if you guys are like me and you, and you are Eberhart fan, you might want to consider going to one of his seminars. He's doing seminars kind of all through the Midwest and around the country. I know he's going to be in Michigan. Uh, he's going to be in Ohio. He's going to be in Wisconsin. Uh, so if you guys are interested in going to one of John Eberhart's uh, seminars, he basically walks you through. He leads you by the hand, takes you through step-by-step step exactly how he gets on these big bucks every single year in heavily pressured Michigan. Uh, so if you guys want to know more about one of his seminars, which I would highly recommend, if you can't attend, at least buy one of his books. Uh, but go to go to his website, dearjohn.net. That is D-E-E-R, like the animal, Dear dash john.net uh dear john.net and check out some of his seminars it's all there and you know pick up one of his books and you'll learn a lot about saddle hunting for sure yeah and then john's also doing uh his eberhart's whitetail workshop which you can find the link to on um on the saddlehunter.com as well and it's I've only heard great things about this so far, and he, I'm sure he's going into even more detail about his system than he is in these yeah. seminars. Yep, it's a good thing. If I'm if I'm ever so he's, he's, he's got I'm multiple dates throughout the year. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Scott. What else are we got? Right, what do we, so what do we need to see, tell so, these guys before we let well, them go? Well, we just mentioned it's the holidays, so uh, we're posting up a uh, holiday saddle hunter store coupon. So you guys can enter the code Rudolph to get 10% off your saddle oh, hunting gear. Yeah, and I, I can't uh, tell you how much I love all my saddle hunting gear. I, I almost I wear have it like one a of maniac. everything. I wear the hat everywhere and the, the sweatshirt everywhere. Yeah, I, I, wear, I wear the hat Excuse everywhere. Excuse me, it's not a hat. It's a kill the cap. Sweatshirt, the kill cap, that's right. Um, I... I love my Saddle Hunter mug. I actually have the uh, the smaller normal size, and then I got the the large one, and I won't drink my coffee at home out of anything. <laughs> I else. get a lot of questions about what the SH is, so maybe maybe uh, I don't know, but I think it's cool because then I get to explain it. Yeah, th- then the, you draw them in. Yeah, yeah, um, and and you know, finally, I guess before we let you go, yeah. So you guys jump on saddlehunter.com slash store. There's if you log onto the forum, there's a big link at the top from. Uh, in the web version, at least, uh, go to the store and check out the kill caps and the shooties and the, the shirts and all the stuff that we got. And, uh, hopefully you find something you can like and help, help evangelize the world about the wonders of saddle hunting. Um, and then I guess finally, Scott, unless you have something else, I'm going to plug saddle Palooza. Saddle Palooza is yeah. the world's largest saddle hunting event. And Scott and I are putting it on this year. We're putting it on in, in southern Georgia in February, and we're going to all shoot some pigs. I'm just happy to be coming to uh, to meet you guys and to see everybody's cool gear and, and just hang out with some cool guys. Yeah, it's going to be a blast. I cannot wait for this thing. We're going to shoot pigs. We're going to have great uh, great food. Um, I promise you guys will love meeting all your fe- fellow saddle hunters and 
getting to talk with them about their setups and their gear and their platforms and climbing methods. And we've got a freaking amazing, uh, raffle we're going to do. And I'm going to name these sponsors because they've, they've been so kind to us. Um, arrow hunter, they've donated a complete Kestrel setups. So you're talking over $300 easy hunters donated a whole bunch of sit drags, wild edge with their step ladders they're donating a whole bunch of stuff to the to the to the raffle ernie's outdoors has sent me a couple of platforms um which those are not cheap and stealth outdoors they've given me stealth strip kits bullman outdoors they've given me a set of the silent approach climbing system and you know we just have so much cool stuff that's going to happen at saddle palooza so if there is any chance that you can make it in february that's over a uh, a holiday weekend the president's day a holiday weekend. If you guys can make it to Saddlepalooza, I know you won't regret it. We've already got guys flying in from Minnesota, from Texas. Uh, Pink Squirrel, he's going to be flying in from New Jersey. <laughs> uh, we got guys coming in from all over the country, and and even I got uh, I got a message the other day from some folks that want to come from America's friendly neighbor to the north. Some folks from Ontario want to fly down and come to the event. So. Please uh, do not feel like you're too far away to come. We would love to have you. It's going to be awesome. You guys will be be missing out if you don't make it. Yeah, I can't wait. It's just as you're going through our sponsors list, just I'm just sitting here thinking what a great community of guys we have and some of the best sponsors around. So it's uh, it's going to be a great event. Yep, I cannot wait, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to shoot some pigs. I've even got something in the works. I've got a couple of ringers uh, down here in South Georgia that are known for killing pigs, and I've about got them talked into coming and giving us all a crash course on pig hunting. So even if you've never hunted pigs and you wouldn't even know where to start, don't even worry about it. We're going to take care of you. I'm going to have all that stuff sorted. So um, if you if you don't know about Saddlepalooza, jump on uh, to saddlehunter.com. There's a link in the top uh, top menu bar. You can read all about it. All the details are right there, uh, and we would love to see you guys. And, Scott, I think we have probably taken up enough uh, time of these guys, of, of listeners. Uh, what else you got to say? What's, uh, what do you, what's your final thought, Scott? Well, for today, just before we uh, wrap it up completely, I personally just want to thank you for putting the Saddle Palooza together. You've been doing most of the legwork, and it's going to be a great event. So um, just thank you, man. Well, you know, it's a, it's a labor of love for sure. Um, I, I certainly don't mind doing it. I mean, I get I get as much joy out of it as anybody else. So it's a lot of fun. I cannot wait. Again, I cannot wait to do it with, uh, for it to happen again this year or next year rather. But thank you guys for listening. With that, we're going to end uh, Season 1, Episode 2 of the Saddle Hunter Podcast. Um, glad you guys downloaded and listened. Please share it on social media if you do that. And, um That would be great. Help us grow the Saddle Hunter community. And uh, we will catch you guys next time on the Saddle Hunter Podcast.